why it is, but number of people. <laughs> anyway, welcome to this free forum seminar. Um, Pete Williams and myself, uh, good friends and colleagues, will enjoy this time together with you. And uh, uh, we have uh, quite a substantial time, so we do hope this will be interactive, that you will contribute. Uh, it's really up to you to, uh, to uh, create an, an, an interactivity. We will leave space for it, but we need you to step up and do it. Um, the focus, really, for this is the, uh, the God Question series. And in the binder, in the forum binder, there is, in the very back of the binder, you, may, you will find this paper. It's a single paper on this series called the God Question series, Science, God, and the Search for Truth. And this is a new, uh, which you may have heard of before. How many of you are familiar, by the way, with the series? Have you heard of it? Some of you have? Uh, there is a broadcast series. It was broadcast in Sweden in, in November, I think, in Norway in January, February, and it's now moving into various countries. I don't know about that. I know about Yes, obviously. Yes, yeah. Anyway, this is a series, and, and so our forum now. Uh, hi, Jeff. Our, our pre-forum now is built on that series and is going to introduce it and going to explore the content and see how useful it is, but it's not limited to that series, the, the value of it. Anyway, this is a, a, a three-part series. Uh, it's three times uh, 52 minutes, the broadcast version. And then there is a DVD version for use either in schools or in churches. And that is uh, 6 times 30 minutes. It's either 3 times 52 or 6 times 30 And um, this is breaking new ground because it is a series which presents a balanced picture of the God debate, of the God and science debate. You may recall some years ago there was this famous book, uh, The Da Vinci Code, which created a lot of interest all around the world in the question of who is Jesus. And of course many Christians thought it was uh, a really bad thing. Uh, well, on the other hand, it was a good thing that the question of who Jesus is was put on the agenda, which really presented an opportunity for us to explore that and to use that. And this is a, you know, the same thing happens quite a few years ago when Richard Dawkins published his book, The God Delusion. Again, the content is in many ways destructive, uh, but, again, it puts the question of God on the agenda. God and science, the God question, is now firmly on the agenda. So, uh, some of you may be familiar with that Richard Dawkins made a series, uh, actually he made three different series on BBC, and actually BBC gave him the microphone and, and the camera and said, do whatever you want. At least that was what seemed to have happened if you look at the result. So it was very much a propaganda version for him, you know, um, on, for example, God and the question of the evil. Uh, religion has the root of all evil, which was one of the So there were a group of, of, of Christian uh, people, evangelical, uh, a production company, and some others came together in the UK and said, we need to do something about this. And then they resulted that was the introduction of this series. 
And they decided not to go for the alternative route, you know, to produce a Christian propaganda or argumentative piece, but actually to produce a balanced picture of the deacons. So this series is unique because it, it, it presents different perspectives, different positions, different arguments, and try to be fair. So it's a documentary trying to be fair according to classical journalistic ideals and, and, and uh, perspectives. So I think, you know, before going into this, it's helpful to have three, what I would say is a threefold task that we need to address. Uh, as Christians living in a pluralistic culture, in a culture with many different perspectives, competing truth claims, and also living in a culture where the secular uh, thinking is so tremendously influential. You know, it's, it's like presenting who God is is not really considered as a possibility even in, in many contexts. We, it's ruled out as, as a possibility even at the outset. So I think we have a threefold task here. The first task is to facilitate a public debate that is more balanced. Sometimes we as Christians can actually uh, be facilitators of such a debate to create arenas and structures. There are some arenas in the world where this could happen. You can, by your own participation, uh, you know, contribute to more balanced debate. Uh, there may be a, a setting like Speaker's Corner in, in, in UK, or a setting like a traditional documentary uh, uh, format like this one. Or public debate. You may have seen a number of public debates between John Lennox and, and, and Richard Dawkins or William Lane Craig and, and others. And that is something about the same idea that is behind this series. It's trying to, to contribute uh, to creating a more balanced debate where <clears throat> those who listen, those who view this, will be able to understand the issues better, understand the arguments better, but the programs themselves don't present the conclusion. It's open to the viewers to draw the conclusions. So it's an open-ended approach where you sort of bring others, bring a number of people to the table. And I think the unique thing is that this series brings credible Christian voices to the table. It brings people like John Lennox, William Lane Craig, John Polkinghorne, Francis Collins, and a number of others to the table to contribute alongside atheists, pantheists, agnostics, or So I think that's our first task in today's pluralistic culture when it comes to these issues, is to facilitate public debate, stimulate that. And sometimes it's our task to help people to engage and understand, and not always only to argue for our position, but help people to engage, present the issues in a much more broader spectrum and, and, and a much more comprehensive way. And then, of course, the second task is to contribute to the public debate. Hello. Welcome. And the second task is for some people who has the possibility and the roles of contributing to this debate by being 
one of the voices that comes that are being drawn to the table. So we need people like John Lennox, who's going to be near the plenary speaker this this uh, Bible uh, morning, the Bible studies in the morning, uh, we look forward to, of course. And someone like William Lynn Craig and the others. So some of us have the role of facilitating, I think. And maybe people are, are working as journalists, as documentarians, as people, whether it's you know, in some culture being, being a, a radio show host or a television show host, or you know, in influential roles where you, you are a gatekeeper in a public debate setting. And that should not be underemphasized. It's a very important role. But the second role for some people are then to contribute The third role is actually to help Christians to understand the issues better. Enable Christians to engage. Many Christians, um, many evangelicals especially, when it comes to God and science, immediately goes to some questions that are at the top of their minds. And sometimes these questions relate to in-house discussions within the Christian church. So it's, for example, very common to... <coughs> to quickly move to the area of evolution, for example, uh, and, and to present one position on that, whatever that position may be. But that is not the primary issue. The primary issue is, is the God. And so the primary issue is theism, or atheism, or pantheism. So the primary issue is an issue of worldviews. And then we may ask, of course, uh, add on, on the top of that, that then a second, uh, uh, an implication of that may be to ask what is then, which kind of God are we talking about? We're talking about uh, if we choose a faith, the position of God of the Bible, the God of the Quran, the God of whatever. So you see, we need to help Christians to engage at a meaningful level to distinguish between primary questions and secondary questions, between the public issues. Issues of general interest and the in-house discussions uh, in Christian circles. And also enable Christians to participate at different levels and in different arenas. <coughs> it may be helpful for you to know something about what we did in Norway uh, when this was broadcast in, in January and February. Because it was actually broadcast three times. Yeah, by the equivalent event to, to BBC, they cannot care. And it was, was almost prime time broadcast. <coughs> and uh, what we did was that we created a website that was intended to help people to understand the issues better. That was advertised, and it was not advocating a specific Christian position or, you know, as a whole website, but it included the debates, included the issues help people to engage with the programs, to be able to con converse, talk to others, stimulate discussion. We got actually quite a lot of good response on that. And then we had another website where we actually pushed the Christian arguments and perspectives uh, and, and directed people to that. If you want to get to know the Christian perspective, you know, in depth, this is where you can find it. So a number of people in the Christian churches, for example, found that really and as I said, the, the, the series is then a broadcast series, but it's also a DVD series. 
and that DVD series is intended to help either on the school arena or on the church arena to engage with these issues in a much more uh, in-depth way. So we hope to publish those DVDs shortly. Finally, before going to, to uh, engage with the series and the issues itself in those two programs, let me, let me conclude this introduction by <coughs> quoting, referring to a very influential document from 2010. It's called the Cape Town Commitment. Some of you may be familiar with, with the Lausanne Movement, uh, which started in 1974 as a global network of evangelical leaders. And this was the first, uh, uh, the first meeting was held in Lausanne in 1974, with John Stott and Billy Graham as, as the leading uh, personalities, luminaries at that time. And the Lausanne Covenant was very influential uh, as, as a platform, for example, functioning also indirectly as a platform for the LF. Yeah. The Cape Town commitment in, in the foreword there, it says something very significant. It says that the intention of the whole Cape Town Congress, the whole Cape Town commitment, and, and uh, by implication that uh, uh, the, the, the intention of us engaging with the global world today as Christians is the challenge to bear witness to Jesus Christ and all his teaching. You may recall the bear witness to expression from John's Gospel. It's a very rich expression talking about that the whole of us are involved as human beings in bearing witness to who Jesus is, the uniqueness of Christ, and to his teaching, everything included in, in what he taught. So to bear witness about Jesus Christ and all his teaching. And then it adds in three dimensions, in three um, different aspects. The first aspects in every nation. So we are called as Christians today to bear witness in every nation globally. That's you know the traditional understanding of mission, cross-cultural mission. But also in every sphere of society. And that includes the, the sphere of the, of science, for example, which we will tackle here today. That includes the, the sphere of education. That includes the sphere of media and so on. And as Christians, we are, as Christians, we have often underestimated, underestimated the importance of bearing witness, not just in the church context as such, but equipping Christians to bear witness to Jesus Christ in every sphere of society. And then thirdly, the third dimension, and in the realm of ideas. So we are called to bear witness to Jesus Christ the Holy Spirit. Also in the realm of ideas. That means where ideas are shaped. And where does that happen today? it happens in the educational system, it happens in the media system, and in the intersection of that, and of course in the family context, in the church context. So, so I think this is a very crucial challenge to all of us. We are called to bear witness to the whole richness of who Jesus is. He who is claimed to be the word, by whom the whole world is created. In him, everything is kept together, held together, held together. And we are called to bear witness to him globally, in every sector of society, including the area of science, and then in the value of ideas. 
So I have that as a, as a background to what we want to talk about. This is the task that we have to bear with us Jesus and all his teaching and all that implies. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of coming to you in prayer and in the name of Jesus. We thank you for each moment we text this pre-photo seminar. We pray that you will have a good time together, an engagement time, time of learning together about truth and about reality and about you as creator and sustainer of the universe. Thank you for calling us together because of Jesus Christ. I always teach you. We pray that this time together here, profitable for each one of us in relationship to our ministries, our contexts, where we move each and every day. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. So, Pete, <coughs> what about if you took over from here? Okay. And Do I need to uh, clip myself to microphones? I'd like to, to um, start by re-emphasizing what Lars just said uh, about um, the balance uh, in the program, um, because in a sense what we're going to do today will give you a slightly unbalanced view of the series, uh, because uh, coming at this as someone uh, who's engaged in the area of philosophy and, and apologetics generally, uh, who's contributing uh, to that public uh, debate and wanting to uh, encourage um, my fellow Christians with the, the fascinating information and arguments that are in this area uh, in putting together a sort of guided tour uh, through the series, uh, some uh, uh, very long clips and various shorter clips and so on, and diving uh, behind the conversation that it's presenting there to, to kind of show you um, how you could move uh, beyond the, the balanced picture that the series presents uh, to actually engaging in, in the arguments and how the, uh, the Christian uh, side of this has the better of the arguments, uh, that will inevitably uh, mean that I'm sort of unbalancing what the TV program does. Uh, so I thought it was worthwhile uh, re-emphasizing that. Uh, I hope you'll see as we'll go uh, through uh, the, the quality uh, of the, the presentation uh, in the series. It really is just a world-class uh, presentation that you don't need to uh, have any uh, worries about it seeming like uh, a sort of uh, back-of-the-van operation, as it were. Um, so I apologize if at any stage the limitations of my laptop's graphic card uh, mean that some of the clips get a little bit juddery, but it's really uh, well produced, uh, aesthetically speaking. This is a good piece of documentary making, um, as well as the, the, the sheer fascination of the actual content, uh, the number of, of well-known talking heads uh, from a, a, across a range of positions that they have. Um, and also... Um, when it comes to the teaching uh, DVD that splits each of the, the programs into two, uh, so it's a, a sort of half-hour uh, session that you could fit into a small group church setting or uh, a community discussion group kind of setting, um, they've done a, a very uh, interesting thing with the program by, by putting um, colour-coded uh, chapter headings. And you'll probably notice occasionally in some of the clips uh, a sort of colour uh, dot appearing 
in the screen. And that's a colour dot that relates to a booklet that they've produced, really nicely produced booklet, um, whereby you can go in at particular chapters to look at particular issues. Here it is. My lovely assistant is showing it off here. Um, (laughs) And they have discussion questions and quotations from the series and so on to help you uh, guide group discussion on it. And actually, whenever there's a, a, a talking head appears on the show, they get that old strap line, you know, Professor So-and-so, uh, physicist at Caltech or whatever. Uh, those are colour-coded as well to let you know whether they're coming at the issue uh, as an atheist or as a theist or from a sort of uh, position of neutrality. They're just there to give you a bit of information within the show. Uh, and many of those uh, are agnostics, I think. Uh, but if they're specifically coming at the issue as, you know, Peter Atkins, atheist, or William Lane Craig, theist, the colour coding lets you know their position in quite a, a, a subtle way. I think that's a really nice feature that they've built in into it. So, uh, am I am I okay here if I stand for the video at this side of the? I'm just making sure I'm not out of shot and things. Um, The God question covers uh, science, God, and the search for truth. Uh, It is subtitled. Uh, And science, uh, well, we could spend a whole fascinating conference on debating how do we uh, understand what science is. Uh, Let me uh, step in where angels fear to tread and and just suggest uh, that we think of science as a, a fallible discipline. Uh, that's important to say. All, all human disciplines, science and theology indeed, are fallible human disciplines. Uh, science is the fallible human discipline that's seeking to understand the truth about observable reality. And when you do that, it very quickly leads you away from immediately observable reality and towards sort of indirectly observable reality. And by the time you're getting into questions of uh, cosmology and so on, uh, the, the, the difference between are we doing science or are we doing philosophy, um, you could stick a, a piece of paper between them. Not surprisingly, uh, since, of course, scientists um, have only had the name for a couple of hundred years. Science used to be part of philosophy. It was natural philosophy, uh, but it... Uh, in, uh, gradually uh, moved away out of uh, the philosophy departments into their own departments in the university uh, settings. There is a, a primary focus in this series, not only on, on the balanced presentation of, of the discussion today, but on uh, what you might call mainstream science. The series is more concerned to say, what does mainstream science tell us about our world? And then how do different people from different worldviews interpret that information as fitting or not fitting with different understandings of the world, religiously speaking? There are moments within the program where it gets more into the details of um, uh, controversial issues and gives a voice to minority positions, uh, such as uh, creationist positions or intelligent design positions uh, within the sciences. But that's not its main focus, uh, as it were. Uh, and that's just the way that they've, they've decided to, to focus on, on the, the philosophical issue, which is, the, again, the, the difference between the primary issues and the second, secondary issues, uh, the philosophical issue of, of actually, it's not that science directly tells us what worldview to have. It's that people do science, and then they think philosophically about it, 
in terms of their worldviews. It's much more that way around, generally speaking, that things happen. Uh, so the search for truth brings in the necessity of, of philosophy uh, in uh, sort of, uh, you know, Thomas Aquinas famously, say, famously said that science was, that, that theology was the queen of the sciences assisted by her handmaiden philosophy. And philosophy sort of acts as a handmaiden here as well in terms of the relationship between science and uh, theology or a theology uh, from the other side. I think that either God invented man or man invented God. One of those two is probably perfection. And I think it's important as scientists that we don't pretend somehow we have a secret microscope or a secret measuring device that allows us to make that critical philosophical distinction. Science is wonderful. And science provides a tremendous amount of knowledge and information about the world. But I think it also has its place. And what we also find is that ultimately when we talk about the human ability to accurately know what they're perceiving on the inside and whether or not that's accurate and compatible with what is out there in the real world, science is always trapped within our own brains. And therefore it never gets us to, that, to be able to answer that philosophical question of how do we really know if what we perceive inside is really what's real. So, without going into the details of what it's talking about there, it's just, I wanted to show that clip at the beginning because it's interesting that the program itself highlights the fact that science, although that's the whole focus of the program, science is not the royal road to reality, as it were, and that there is a sense in which we have to remember that our interpretation of what the science is telling us is at least as much influenced by our philosophical understanding of things as it is by what the science is telling us uh, and we, we put those together and different people of different positions put them together uh, in different ways so I thought it was nice that they, they had just a little bit in the first program uh, of various uh, people saying you know science is great and it's important and we want to um, incorporate what science tells us about reality into our understanding of things but when we do that we, we, we necessarily end up thinking at a philosophical uh, level as well. So that's uh, the necessity of philosophy, although it's science and the God question, science, God, and the search for truth. Uh, let's have a fairly long clip from Programme 1, and I'll focus most, we'll focus mostly on Programme 1, and, if, and we hopefully have time to get on to 2 and 3, but we'll speed up as we go through as it were, but uh, perhaps that's because Programme 1 had, had the most issues that fascinated me personally, so sorry about that. Yeah. And before that, there are three issues focused on in the three programs. One is cosmos. So the question is, in view of mainstream science, in view of the knowledge you know, in mainstream science about cosmos, about, uh, for example, Big Bang, which worldview fits that best, you know, provides the best interpretation of mainstream science? That's the first issue. The second issue is about life and evolution. In view of mainstream science about the knowledge of life and evolution, which worldview fits that or explains that in the most satisfactory way. 
And then thirdly, it's about humanity, uh, about the brain and the human brain and the human consciousness. Which worldview then fits what mainstream science claims in that arena, in that area, uh, most efficient? But maybe you have any comments or, 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 or reflections so far, so let's uh, open up that. Yeah. As the, what does it mean to first order discipline? A first order discipline. Oh, yes, sorry, I missed out a bit of the, um, the definition here. Um, it's a first-order discipline in that when you ask questions about the discipline, when you ask questions like, so what is science? What is the value of science? How does science relate to theology? Those are, those are second-order questions. They're questions about science, and they're not, questions, they're not scientific questions. So those questions are not questions that science can answer or that scientists are the specialists at answering, but rather questions for philosophers of science or theologians uh, to grapple with. Yeah. So in order to answer those questions, one has to move beyond the realm mm. of, of science. Yeah. Any other questions, reflections so far? Um, I would say that this is probably the most significant thing that has happened in terms of public debate in Norway for quite a long time, what we discovered the last half year, to give you, you know, put this into context. It's such a you know, relief to have something so well produced that introduces a Christian perspective in the context of pluralism. And we shouldn't underemphasize you know, that kind of approach that we don't claim to have each and every perspective on our own, but we, you know, we, we, we claim the right to contribute to the discussion within the context of pluralism. Mm. As I think that's worth reflecting. Okay? Mm. Great. Um, so here is um, a clip from the beginning of the, 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 the program on, on cosmos and cosmology. Um, that uh, will set us up by introducing the, the modern scientific picture of the cosmos. The Big Bang theory is as certain as anything in science. I suppose nothing in science is ever mathematically certain, like 2 plus 2 equals 4. But it is the kind of certainty that simply makes it not worthwhile considering alternatives. In terms of where the Big Bang came from or what started it, what powered it, we don't know. And that really is genuinely difficult. Uh, we don't know. We understand, essentially, biology. We don't understand cosmology. In a sense, we can say cosmology is waiting for its Darwin. A further mystery perplexing scientists is why, from the first seconds after the Big Bang, order began to emerge from what could have been complete chaos. It was a big mystery as to how the Big, big Bang went back and produced such order in the universe. Because if you put a stick of dynamite in a pile of bricks, bang, you've got what a terrible mess. In this new newly born universe, the laws of physics went immediately to work, producing chemical elements that lay the foundations of life. Within three minutes, there was helium and hydrogen, vital for the development of stars. 
With stars, there can be light. With hydrogen, there can be water. With water, there could be life. Well, what you see is something which is almost completely feasible. This was hot gas, and yet now we have the extraordinary richness and diversity uh, of the galaxies and the stars. All of this has developed since. If life as we know it was ever to exist, the elements formed in the early universe needed to be in the right balance. In the case of helium and hydrogen, somehow that was the result of split-second timing. If, in fact, the elements had formed not at the end of three minutes, but at the end of 30 seconds, then the universe would start at this almost pure helium with very little hydrogen. Now, hydrogen is pretty important to us. Would a little bit of hydrogen left be enough to allow for the existence of life? I don't know. I mean, it would be a very different universe. The universe continued its spectacular and orderly development. Out of the gas and dust left over from the Big Bang, stars and planets began to form. This happened much later. This was when the universe was already maybe 100 million, 200 million years old. You had a lot of gas and dust that's rolling together, and somehow it is collapsing under its own gravitational pull. The dust is actually a bit like the dust you have at home. A little bit finer particles, but there are particles that still contain carbon, silicon, components, so on. You can have the dust and gas collapsing, and at the center for that, you're building basically a baby star. As the star is born, it begins to rotate, and the whole cloud of gas and dust can collapse down into a disk. We think that happened with our solar system. The planets would form inside this disk. As the sun formed, it absorbed 99% of the gas and dust around it. From what remained, rock-like bodies created in the heat began to form. Our solar system came into being and took its place in the galaxy we call the Milky Way. A galaxy is a collection of about a hundred billion stars like the sun. Each dot is a star. So if you imagine that one of those dots is the sun, then you can see we are very, very tiny with respect to the size of that galaxy. There are about 200 billion galaxies in our observable universe. 
gracious me. My laptop was behaving better the other day. There is um, power coming to this extension lead, isn't there? Must be, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Do you want to do the um, three key questions and the responses on... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there is a beginning of the universe. One of the major implications of the Big Bang theory, the whole Big Bang uh, scientific theory, is that it, the universe started at one point in time. Time and space has a beginning, a definite, temporary beginning. If you, you know, walk, think along time as one dimension and, 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 and uh, space as another, there is one point when this started all. The very beginning. We heard about the three first, uh, well, the 31st seconds and the three first minutes and so on in this clip just, just a couple of minutes ago. Um, what does that imply? Well, of course, it's a very interesting question to ask. What does that imply for atheism? If everything started once, and atheism is struggling today to, to try to, 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 to answer that question. And thirdly, does the fine-tuning of the universe point to a fine-tuner? I don't know if, if you have read some of the new atheists' uh, material, but it's interesting that some of them, maybe all of them, actually say, claim, that there is an appearance of fine-tuning. It seems to be fine-tuned. Like, uh, uh, you know, the title The Blind Watchmaker mm. by uh, Dawkins, was it? Mm. Um, so, so, 
it's it's an, an, an acknowledgement that there seems to be a pattern. There seems to be a fine-tuning. maybe So, here are three fundamental questions. Why is the universe there at all? Is it self-explanatory in itself, or is, does it, by its existence, point beyond itself? Does it raise the question of meaning by, exist, by existing? And we mustn't underestimate, I think, the, the, the power of that, that question. Secondly, uh, you know, the, uh, the finiteness of it all, the beginning of it. And I, I think it's important for all of us to take, take home that. According to mainstream science, the Big Bang understanding, that, that theory is very, uh, you know, thoroughly established, and it creates real, real difficulties for an atheist understanding of reality. And then thirdly, we talked about the fine tuning. Let's go to the atheist response. Um, people like Atkins and Krauss says something can come out of nothing. Really? Well, they claim that. That's their understanding of reality. That uh, actually nothing is the explanation of the something. That why is there anything rather than nothing? Well, because there was nothing before. And that nothingness in some way explains everything. And there are different ways of phrasing this, of explaining this, and we may come back to that. But still, that's a fundamental understanding. Secondly, they claim that quantum mechanics shows that the first event, that is the Big Bang, could have happened without a cause. It's a, an understanding of the first um, condition of the whole universe could be explained through the mechanics of quantum mechanics, through that mechanism, that in some way or another that could actually by itself create the universe that we see today. So it's appealing to the mechanism of quantum mechanics almost in a mysterious way it seems. Thirdly, um, we are actually the result, the winners of a cosmic lottery. Um, the specificity of the cosmic fine-tuning is, uh, is a chance consequence of being winners in a cosmic lottery. Either we were very lucky, which of course then we are you know, uh, winners of the lottery, very lucky, or we postulated an alternative explanation, which you may have heard of, the so-called multiverse, that there is just not one universe there is a number of possible universes. And then you add, you know, an almost infinite number of universes. And that seems to be the explanation. Okay, if there are an infinite number, or at least a very large number, why should there be a universe like ours among those with life-emitting uh, existence? Uh, so, you see, there is something here about, about how do we respond to these questions. Okay, then. How is the classical theist response like the Christian theism? Well, first of all, that the existence of something rather than nothing is consistent with the classical Christian doctrine of creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. In the beginning, God created. 
and we could go to you know John one or Colossians one or Hebrews one as well. Very important passages, and that is by a necessary being. Um, that is, God is exists by necessity. Um, have you noticed the little phrase in John's Gospel where Jesus says that uh, as the Father exists, uh, no, as the Father has life in Himself, so He has given to me to have life uh, in myself. So only God is self-existent. All of us are dependent on Him. And that's, of course, going back to, to, uh, to one type of cosmological argument. There are different types. And this is the so-called Leibnizian type. Secondly, <clears throat> if the universe had a beginning once, the temporal finiteness of the universe, it has a beginning at one point, it does suggest then that there is a transcendent cause, a cause outside the universe. And this then... Uh, uh, corresponds to the argument presented especially by someone like William Lane Craig called the Kalam argument. That, uh, uh, <clears throat> so, uh, talking about if, 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 that if the universe started to exist, uh, began to exist, and everything that begins to exist has a cause, then the universe must have a cause. And then, thirdly, the whole area of fine tuning being a very strong indicator that there is supernatural intelligence involved, um, that there is someone who has deliberately designed the whole universe to be compatible with life, to be life permitting. So you need, do you see the force of these questions, the force of these arguments? And this is just trying to be there to the atheist and the theist position. And it goes back to these three fundamental questions. So I think it's very important that we understand the stark contrast here between the atheist and the theist position. And sometimes it seems as if Christians hasn't really, many Christians in, you know, in churches and hasn't, they haven't really engaged with the stark difference here. They haven't really put themselves in the shoes of an atheist and tried to answer the question without God. Because we are, you know, for us it's sort of almost self-evident that God is there and God has created. Any reflections before moving on? Yes? Well, I am more into that the moment Uh, that's one reflection. The other one is, I 
I think that. Let me just repeat your first reflection for, okay. the, for the camera. Yeah. Um, uh, so the first reflection is, is, is one thing is to look at each an individual factor or question, but if you then look at the whole of that everything is dependent, everything is dependent on a transcendent cause, that actually leads to a, a very powerful, you know, holistic argument as it were. I'm not paraphrasing you. My point is that you have to really not confuse the color. No, that's right. They're the quite distinct documents. Yes. Yeah. So Thank you. And you had a second reflection. Yeah, that's uh, when I look at um, this question about, for example, he said that oh, it's so well established. Uh, actually, it's stronger about it. says that it was like proven almost. Mm -hmm. I would say I would disagree with that claim because there is a lot of scientists and, and in fact it speaks against it. But it's like a parody. There are a lot of things for it, but also an anomalies. Mm -hmm. and you just don't look at that. For example, that the background radiation is different, different uh, ways, and it shouldn't be that if it was a big bang and so forth. But, but uh, my point is that you have the philosophers, Craig, and you have the creationists. And usually the creationists, they criticize scientific theories on big bang, while the philosophers usually accept them and try to. Incorporate, and I think the, the best position is, is to have both, make a disjunction. Yeah, well, there's a problem with that there, here and here and here. And this, like, for example, the movement of the galaxies shows that the universe must be down, but there was also evidence for it. But even if it's true, and then we have the philosophy incorporation. So, so we need to choose to accept it. Okay, I just need, just need to repeat it again. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, the, the, the reflection is about how established is really, how sh certain is really the whole Big Bang theory, well there are disputes about that, uh, and within the Christian church there are different approaches to it. Uh, and you have, for example, you said the, the young earth uh, approach, approach to it, and you have the, the more old earth or more intelligent design approach to it, and, and, and the whole spectrum. Yeah. And, End of summary. My my reflection just yeah, yeah. that. That was yeah. I think that it's a good point to not have these positions and to criticize each other, but rather have a discussion. Either this or this. Mm -hmm. But either way, mm -hmm. that is, mm -hmm. if the if the creation is right, we have this and this argument that, then we're right. God is existing in the universe. But even if they're wrong, if there was a big bang and so forth, it doesn't exclude God necessarily. So, so I, I think that, uh, uh, again, what the series does is to, to, to take its premise, the mainstream science, and not the alternative positions, the more controversial positions, and then claiming that it seems really that the Big Bang, to talk about that, the, the origin of the universe, is a very established you know, theory. It's not undisputed totally, and as I said, because it has such strong implications worldview issue, there are a number of, of, of attempts to to change it or to, 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 to change the conclusions into making it a less of a definite starting point, for example. Uh, but that, that is done often by philosophical reasons by people who are not theists. So I think the interesting thing is if the Big Bang should be taken on face value as an established theory, then it's a very strong uh, 
point, pointer towards uh, the existence of a transcendent cause of God. So, yes, Jen. I have a question. I don't know if you're going to bring it up later. Maybe you don't want to do it the right way. When we bring it, when we get into this speaker's point, one of the things that comes up over and over again, they agree. They do agree the 32nd to three minutes. That's not the problem. They do agree that there was a, uh, a primal. Maybe you should say, Jenny, that your context is primarily among Muslims in London. No, this is not a Muslim argument. No, 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 but, but people often bring that up. with atheists. Okay, okay. When we're dealing with atheists, this is what they come up with all the yeah. time. And their response is very much what Dr. Collins did there on that clip. And that is, it's not so much that, uh, that we have an answer for that yet. No. There will be, uh, the, the answer will come. Give us time. Uh, as Dawkins said, we need a new Darwin. A new Darwin character to come along and actually explain how it all began. So maybe, how do you deal with that? Mm. Yeah. Then you could take it on. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so, again, repeating, uh, the question is, is about those atheists who, like Dawkins in, in that clip, that were faced with something like uh, trying to think about the implications of a Big Bang, say, okay, we, we don't understand. We don't have a, a, a comfortable atheist naturalistic explanation of that yet, but give us time and we will. Uh, we will. Uh, have such an explanation. Um, I think one way of responding uh, to that would be to try and pull the same trick on them when they ask you a question that they think is a difficult one for Christianity to answer. You know, say, uh, pick any, any, any issue you like, but if, if the Christian were to respond to an atheist objection uh, that points to some sort of sign scientific uh, discovery and say, you know, isn't that a difficulty for you Christians to deal with? And you say, well, if you were to say, well, what if I were to say, well, yeah, that seems quite difficult to deal with at the moment, but, you know, give us give us a hundred years, and I'm sure that someone will come up with a wonderful explanation, and we'll probably discover some new things that we haven't discovered yet that will show that the Bible's true after all. Now, would the atheist be comfortable and satisfied with that as an answer? Uh, and if not, presumably they wouldn't be, why do they think that they can get away with putting the same trick? Uh, we all have to work with the available evidence and make the best of it that we can, uh, appealing to evidence that doesn't exist yet but might possibly be discovered in the future um, is a very uh, risky move to found your argument on something that's you know, it's not actually here, but we, we'll hope. It's a sort of one, one uh, writer called this a promissory naturalism. We will have a naturalistic answer. And I think what that shows is, is, is that the conversation is, again, it's going back to the philosophy. They've, they've got a very strong faith in their naturalistic philosophy. It's not that the science is, is giving them data that backs up their position. It's that they've got such a confidence in their, their philosophical position that they, they think this you know, difficulty that science is raising will eventually be overcome. Um, so it's not that the science is on their side in, in that conversation, and that's why they're, they're punting to this promissory naturalism. Just to, to add a reflection, I mean, if you think of time and space as two dimensions going back to the Big Bang point, you know, original point, um, really, it seems as if the, the, the scientific evidence points clearly towards that point in time. 
and it's difficult to get around that. So the way people get around is to try to introduce philosophical alternative understandings on it. So for example, say it's not like a, a pointed you know, uh, time, it's, it's more like a rounded time. You know, where you're, it's like you know, uh, going in circles in a way. So, so there's a very fascinating you know, how, how the scientific evidence seems to point so powerfully towards an absolute beginning. But we must be careful. Of course, our belief in God as creator is not dependent on the Big Bang understanding of reality. But if that is true, it points towards an absolute beginning. Taking what Peter was saying, just to bounce off back at you, could you not then therefore say, isn't it interesting that as science is discovered more, it seems to become closer and closer to the biblical account? Not only with time and space mm. and the mm. creation, but mm. also with the historical, the historicity of the Bible. Right. right. More the more yeah. we have studied, the more we're buying the Bible to be true, even when touches mm. Yeah, I think I would reflect the same view, that the more science has discovered, whether you're looking in the areas that this program looks at or you're looking at, say, archaeology or something, the more time and effort we put into studying reality, the more it reflects the view that we get from the Bible. Yeah, yeah. Just, just another reflection here when hearing what you're saying, Jake. It seems to me that many Christians underestimate and underemphasize this. They are so occupied about the question of evolution that they don't, they're not concerned about this area. And, and that's why this series is so powerful, because it spends a whole program on the area of cosmos and the question of the beginning of, of, of cosmos, you know, the, the, the Big Bang question, and then the whole question of fine-tuning. Before moving on to the life and evolution question, and then thirdly, the whole area of brain and consciousness. So, so that's, I think, it's a very strategic move to sort of before coming to the question of life and evolution, actually introducing this as a background. So even if people would accept uh, uh, some kind of evolutionary hypothesis, you know, uh, almost totally or, or, or totally, still it had to be interpreted within this context which is highly fascinating to think about that. It's very difficult to escape the God question. And again, our series is called The God Question. You cannot rule out the God question in view of mainstream science. That's the bottom line the whole time. Just ask, I'm not sure if this is appropriate to cover it later, but one of the things that I noticed that John Lennon says something where he, he was saying that even if the multiverse theory is true, then and it's even more complex, you know, yeah. mechanisms to create. And, but also I noticed that there was a sort of thing on the BBC just cited a report saying that looking at the universe, they're looking for a particular type of cooling in the universe where that would fit the multiverse theory. I mean, is there a kind of, is it, is it gaining ground in terms of, uh, or is it, is it still just, just theory? This is more your area yeah. than mine. We, we, one further you know, preliminary reflection would be that, that, as far as I know, it's more speculation than evidence in terms of multiverse, yes. it seems so far. And, and secondly, that even if the multiverse 
in some kind was a reality. As you say, it, we, are, we cannot escape from the whole total existence of life. Going back to the first question, why is there something rather than nothing? But I think Christians fear this stuff quite a little bit. But you know, a number of, 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 of people like C.S. Lewis and others have talked about, well, maybe there's life on other planets. You know, so there's this exploratory notion. There is nothing to be afraid of in exploring reality. You yes. can't quite hear what they're saying in the front, but I assume what you're saying is, even if you have multiverse, they still have heavenly yeah. That's the right. problem. Yeah. So you're saying yeah. there's many beginnings. Pardon? I mean, there's many beginnings in each possible world. Well, well but that, that's of course a logical problem with the whole idea of a multiverse uh, reality. You know, uh, what, what is really a beginning? Uh, but, but in any case, if you think of the whole multiverse within a gigantic universe, then it has to be a. a, a so, uh, let's see if my laptop is behaving itself a little bit more nicely for our next uh, clip here um, when we come on to it. But um, one slide on the Leibnizian cosmological argument, uh, you're particularly like this, but I thought I'd stick the hardest bit of philosophy in at the beginning and then it's all downhill from there on. So that's all right, isn't it? Um, <laughs> that's the good news. Um, all of these uh, kind of arguments that work with this, this question, why is there something rather than nothing? Um, the, the very question, you're, you're asking for an explanation. It's about when do we need an explanation of things? Uh, and going back to the philosopher Leibniz, German philosopher that this argument's named after, various versions of this so-called principle of sufficient reason. Uh, when you explain something, you need to explain it in terms of something that has... Uh, has enough resources to do the explaining that's needed, that has the wherewithal to explain the thing that you're explaining. Um, here we've put the principle that everything that exists has an explanation of why it exists. But there, are, there could be two ways of explaining why something exists. It's either in the necessity of its own nature, you could say it's, it's the kind of thing that's able to exist without having to have an explanation outside of itself. It doesn't depend on anything outside of itself. It, it, it can just exist. Maybe that's possible. On the other hand, it could be because of something external to it. It, it exists, but only because it has been caused or its existence is explained by something outside of itself. And those seem to be the, the two possible ways in which the existence of a thing could be explained. It's explained by something outside of itself, or it's explained by its own nature. Now, given that if everything that exists has an explanation, either in its nature or due to something outside of its nature, premise two is here simply that the universe exists. That's pretty hard to deny. Okay? That, that's quite a secure premise there. Um, from those, it would follow that the universe does have an explanation of its existence. So here, it clearly raises the question. It seems a sensible question to ask, therefore. So if the universe has an explanation of its existence, this 
is going to be the crucial premise, really. This is going to be where the atheist is going to go, huh, hang on a minute, because we want to claim that that explanation would be God. What you're really saying is that if the, ex- the universe has an explanation of its existence, it's not in terms of its own nature. It seems, it, the universe seems to be the kind of thing that needs an explanation outside of itself. Certainly all of the individual things that make up the universe seem to be the kind of things that have explanations outside of themselves, as it were. Um, Now, if that is true, this is a good argument for, for God. So what they're really going to question, if anything is why think that if the universe has an explanation, then that explanation is, is God. But that's simply really the reverse of what, what atheists have traditionally said that in, a, in an atheistic worldview, that if there is no God to explain the universe, then the universe must explain itself. Because there isn't anything outside of the universe to appeal to, to explain it. So it it would have to explain itself. So actually, the real question is, is the universe the kind of thing (coughs) whose nature contains the resources to to explain its own existence just by thinking about the universe, or not? Or is it the kind of thing that by its nature does seem to point outside of itself Uh, because universes don't exist by a necessity of their own nature and my favourite way to point this out is that often when you're talking about the fine tuning argument with atheists they want to go to a multiverse escape hatch which means saying, well, maybe there is you know, some sort of inflationary cosmology wherein there are lots of universes popping into existence with randomly different laws. They're all different from each other. Universes don't have to be the same, and they can pop into existence, be generated by some sort of field universe-generating mechanism. Uh, and there's so many of those pop into existence that by random you'd expect one that's tuned in the way that is permitting life to exist. But to take that escape hatch is to think of universes as things that can be different, that vary, that can come into existence, that can be caused. I to think of universes as the kind of things that are not what they are by a necessity of their own nature, that don't exist by a necessity of their own nature. Um, so even if the atheists wanted to you know, put their feet down in the face of this kind of cosmological argument and say, no, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say that the universe just it exists by necessity of its own nature. Well, then, when we come on to the fine-tuning argument, they're going to be in an even, even harder bind. Because if they, if, if they want to then use the multiverse escape hatch... Uh, we can show them the contradiction within their position there. Um, so just like in chess, where you can get your knight in the position to, I'm either going to take that pawn, and if, or if you move it and protect it, I'm going to take that one. I'm, you're going to lose one way or the other, 
I've got you in a, a classic chess fork. Um, you can get a classic kind of philosophical fork between a, a cosmological argument like this and the fine-tuning argument, um, such that even if the atheist uh, really wants to say what, what seems to me very implausible to say, that universes are the kind of thing that exist by necessity of their own nature, um, rather than being contingent and, and so on. Well, if they, if, even if they go that route, then they're just making you know, a rod for their own back when we come on to one of the other arguments, which I think is uh, a good way of, of uh, framing the, the, uh, the discussion, steering the discussion, having that in the back of your, your mind. It's like, okay, you, you can say that here, yeah. Just you wait till we come on to this other argument. <laughs> and then do you want to backpedal here? Oh, you, okay, oh, okay now, now, now you want to say that there are lots of you know, universes can pop into existence. They're contingent. Okay. Let me just remind you <laughs> what you said back here. You see? I think that's quite fun. Uh, so that's the, that's the most difficult philosophical bit. It's downhill from here. Uh, any brief questions on that? Uh, but we'll, we'll get back to the, the more purely scientific-y uh, stuff from here on in. Yeah. What percentage of atheists, sorry, would say, you know, theology, philosophy, it's all, it's not really scientific. So you can philosophize all you want. Um, <laughs> Yeah. I've encountered it, but it's not a majority. Yeah. No, it's, it, it, so this is a question about, about what percentage of, of atheists are the kind of atheists who dismiss philosophy, a sort of purely philosophical argument, and would sort of just say, oh, well, that's not science, so I don't need to take notice of it. And there, there are scientists like that. I mean, Stephen Hawking, in his most recent book, opens the book by saying, philosophy is dead. Philosophers haven't kept up with science, and scientists are the bearers of the torch of the truth of discovery, you know, which really annoys fellow atheist philosophers of science down the corridor in the same university. Um, so I think atheists, there are atheists like that, but they, they are also the kind of atheists that puts the backup of a, a majority of, of their colleagues um, through that kind of hardline scientism. Um, but it, it tends to be something that is very much associated with the so-called neo-atheist neo movement. Um, but the, the new atheists are not a majority representation uh, of atheism. I, I think, yes, uh, it would be a minority position usually. Uh, and uh, it would be very difficult then for, uh, for people you know, to really uphold a consistent position. Because, for example, Stephen Hawking then saying, you know... Uh, Philosophy is rubbish. Well, that is a philosophical statement. Yeah. yeah. So, so, and then if John Lennox has written a, a book on that, it's mm. worth reading, where John's point is that he is actually making philosophical statement when he says philosophy is rubbish. So, but again, I think it's it's the good thing is that these folks they really push the issues, which makes it good to explore. And people see, you know, some of the consequences there, uh, 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 and that's whereas there are so many people who choose a more um, balanced approach, a more a softer approach, rather. So I think it's worth keeping in mind. Mm -hmm. Yes. You go back to the other slide. Yeah, sure. The first point: everything that exists has an explanation of its existence. What are you going to do if they say, "Who says? How do we know? Can you prove that there is a?" Why should we assume right. it has an explanation? Do we not be agnostic on that? 
to Yeah, that. sure. So this is a question about the justification of, of, of the causal principle in premise one. Um, many philosophers actually think that something like that is just a necessary prerequisite of, of rationality. Or, or certainly, when if you're talking with, with, with scientists, the whole point of science is to observe things and try and understand them and explain them, to explain A in terms of B and B in terms of C and so on. Um, scientists assume that there are explanations and go out searching for them. Um, if you just allowed the principle that uh, things can just be for no reason, without any explanation at all, um, that would seem to uh, open the door to a kind of irrational world where literally anything could happen and to raise the question, why did that happen, would be nonsensical. Would God not be equally nonsensical? Uh, yeah, so it would, it would... I think if you reject that, that kind of principle, yes, you're, you're opening a door to a sort of nonsensical reality where, where questions of understanding and explanation no longer make, make any sense. Uh, and that is a good reason for accepting the principle. Yeah. But they would respond and say, yes, but you're doing the same thing as a Christian. You're immediately putting God there as a movement, as a guilt. Because you need an answer. Live with it. <laughs> well, uh, no, we've, we've, what we've done here, we, we've given a justification for this principle uh, what we said is that really by saying there's a price tag that attaches to rejecting it. If the person that you're in conversation with is, is genuinely willing to pay that price tag, as it were, well then th that's up to them. Um, but I think it's a very high price tag, and many philosophers think that it's too high a price tag, um, and that's why the conversation then moves on to what is the implication of that principle? Um, it, it seems to be a, a rational place to start a discussion from about how we understand and explain this, that, or the other kind of reality. And it's not that we stick God in at the beginning just because it's our, our favorite answer. Um, it's that um, the argument uh, points to at least something, it points to a transcendent cause of the universe. You, you, and I've, I've simplified a little, because you'd also, if you're talking about, do, do physical things need explanations outside of themselves? And does the whole set of physical things, physical reality, need an explanation outside of itself? But if, if the whole set of physical reality is the kind of thing that needs an explanation, but needs one outside of itself then that outside of all physical reality explanation is by definition a non-physical reality. So you're already into a, a supernaturalistic worldview rather than a, a naturalistic worldview. And that raises interesting questions about what other qualities might there be of a supernatural being upon which all natural physical reality depends uh, for its existence and explanation. Um, and you're down the line um, towards uh, uh, piecing together a picture uh, of God at the, very, at the very least. It would seem that to reject the first principle here would actually be to say that uh, nothing that exists has an explanation. Because you can't 
if you if you say that no, not, yeah. there are things that exist without explanation, mm. you have to be able to the idea that nothing yeah. has an explanation. Right. I mean, Bill, Bill Craig puts the, the point like this, saying if you reject that principle, gentleman's saying that means you'd have to be open to the idea that nothing has an explanation. So, so Bill Craig says, you know, none of us are sitting here worried that maybe a zebra has just popped into existence in our living rooms at home and is currently defecating on the carpet. You know, why aren't we worried about that? Um, now yeah, now you are. But if, 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 if nothing needs to have an ex- if, if nothing needs to have an explanation, then, then anything could be with no explanation, which is, which is to say just because of anything could, could happen. A complete, yeah, so it's a, it's a complete sort of a, a rational, irrational uh, understanding of reality. Yeah, we do live with that. We do live with uh, calls for many of us to explain what happened, what it was around us. And we do live with those that we don't have an explanation for. I think what the atheists would, would say is it's, it's something that they have to live with. We, they're asking us to do the same without completely putting God as the answer to that Right. What what that is that what that is raising an objection to is the atheist is saying, "Aren't you the theist using an argument from ignorance?" And, and an argument from ignorance is an argument of the form, "Here's something that I don't understand, don't have an explanation for. Therefore, God did it." And the problem with that argument is that it's not even an argument, because an argument has to have at least two truth claims about reality as to say this is the case and this is the case therefore this conclusion is, is supported but in an argument from ignorance you just say I, here's a thing that I'm, that I'm ignorant about God well if you're going to do that why not say here's a thing that I'm ignorant about the great pumpkin or here's a thing that I'm ignorant about fairies did it or you know why plug there's no justification for why specifically say, say God. So we have a, a comment here before that comment. There's just, I think this, with this uh, what we're talking about now, reflects the more fundamental discussion about the justification of science and the scientific, mm. you know, the whole enterprise. Uh, because um, one of one of uh, John Lennox's wonderful expressions, I think, is uh, the question is not which worldview that is proven by science, but which worldview that gives the best motivation for science. Mm. So that's, you know, that's a huge difference. Mm. If we look around in nature try to find evidence for God, that's in many ways legitimate. But still, an even more fundamental question is which worldview provides the intellectual basis and motivation for doing science? And there is really a very weak intellectual foundation in atheism. And that is admitted by a number of people in the series as well. Anyway, let's... let's um... Comment there? No, I just... Uh, yeah. Number one there. The nine of it would Collapse of all knowledge because knowledge is based on causality. Mm-hmm. Collapse of all morality because we assume that well, you your thoughts motivate cause you to do something. Yeah. They yeah. that didn't pop up from nothing. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the Holocaust didn't the evidence for the Holocaust didn't pop out of nothing. It's caused by thinking. And furthermore, it's self-refuting because in the very argument 
presupposes a causal principle, saying that this is an argument for that, which causes me not to believe this. Right. So you're saying to reject the first premise here is both intellectually uh, uh, invalid yeah. and it's morally mm. invalid and it's also self-refuting. Yes. Mm. So that's a thanks for yeah. pointing yeah. that out. Yeah. Okay, should we Okay. It could be that if a kind of chaotic universe had fallen to nothing, then it wouldn't survive. It would just collapse back to real nothing. And it may be that our universe happens to be that happy chance of nothing transforming itself into what seems to be something that seems to persist. Now, this is uh, British Oxford chemist Peter Atkins, who's one of the new atheists. And you may not have caught that in passing, but he really did say that the universe may just be an instance of nothing transforming itself into something that seems to exist. So actually, Peter Atkins's answer to the question, why is there something than nothing? Actually, his answer is to say, well, there isn't something rather than nothing. Nothing exists. It just seems like something exists. And that's just a rearrangement, he says, an interesting rearrangement of nothing. It makes no conceptual uh, sense at all, um, but the, the way he would kind of justify saying that in a sort of pseudo-scientific way uh, sometimes is to talk about the way in which uh, the uh, certain uh, energies in the universe that you, you, can, you can measure um, have a balancing force, an opposing force to them. And that you, when you do a, the mathematical sum of the opposing equally balanced physical forces, the resulting product of the sum, because they're equal opposing physical forces, is zero. Oh, nothing. So this positive force balancing out this negative physical force equals nothing. Now that's a, just a play on the word nothing. He's just being ambiguous about uh, nothing. Uh, so I have here the double face palm slide uh, for Peter Atkins and I think a, a little clip uh, from William Lane Craig. This is not actually a clip from uh, the series, but I thought it was a, a clip from a debate that Bill Craig had with Peter Atkins in which uh, Craig uh, absolutely nails him uh, on this point. Uh, so I thought it was fun for us to, to watch. Why does it include the universe? Does that have a cause? Well, it depends how rapidly it's doing. It probably doesn't have a cause. Why does that have a Amount of debt, and I have a certain amount of money, that therefore I have zero money. 
if it's just illogical, even if on balance the capital is dropping nothing, there's still negative energy and positive energy. It doesn't mean that nothing exists. Secondly, I would point out that you still need a productive cost for the universe, even if it's the case that you don't need a material cost for the universe. Christopher Eichel, who is the leading quantum cosmologist of Great Britain, points out in his article, Cosmos and Creation, there's still a need for optic seeding to produce the energy, even if on balance it is not. So you still need to have an optic seed, a, a beginning, a cause, to bring the positive and negative energy into being, even if on balance it's not. But finally, as I say, his solution, I think, is simply absurd. His solution is that nothing exists. And that's simply uh, absurd. I at least exist. As Descartes said, even when I doubt that I exist, who is there to do the doubting? I doubt, therefore I am. There must be something that exists. So I hope you understand how radical this alternative is. If honestly, the, the alternative to believe in the existence of God is to say that nothing is real, nothing exists, then I say let those who decry the irrationality of belief in God be henceforth forever silent. Because nothing could be more irrational or implausible than that. <laughs> if the universe did have an absolute beginning, then since something cannot come out of nothing, since being does not come from non-being, there must exist some sort of transcendent cause which brought the universe into existence. And this is the traditional concept of what theists have meant by God. We have to wait for a non-theistic explanation. Very often you have to wait a long time. But that's what science is. Science is looking for non-theistic explanations of what we see in nature. It's hard for us mortal beings to get our minds around, but of course, if you posit a God that started it, I can just say, but who created God? The question, who made God, is actually an illogical question. And uh, unfortunately, some of my greatest scientists fall into that trap. So uh, Professor Stephen Hawking, who's one of my teachers, asks, uh, who created the creator? God is uncreated. God is the creator and uncreated himself. And, and therefore it is illogical to say who created the uncreated. Part of the idea of God is God is a being who exists without being explained by anything outside of God himself. The concept of God is, is something so majestic and so beyond uh, human logic that we must be very careful not to fall for simplistic questions like that. And if you say, well, God is that which does not need to be created, why can't the universe be that which does not need to be created? For centuries, they believed there was no beginning. The Bible had been saying that for millennia, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. I find it deeply unimpressive, and there are two possibilities. Either the universe began or it has been here forever. Just two possibilities to get one of them is really not that impressive. Um, <laughs> At least it got it right. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, have you seen the God delusion debate uh, you know, from, from the Alabama individuals some years ago? Uh, three 
John Anderson, Richard Dawkins. It's always worth pointing uh, to that debate, I think, because it's a, uh, a very, it's a nice atmosphere. It's, it's, it's a very clear, you know, presentation of, of the position. So it's worth recommending. You can just Google it, the God delusion debate. It's, it's really great value. I think that's a, a good clip for illustrating the, the, the balance of the program. The fact that they, they, had, they had Christian theists, they had a Muslim theist, they had uh, atheists, uh, you know, a range of, of, of views there. In the, people more towards agnosticism. More towards agnosticism, yeah. Uh, and even just showing a, a clip like that with, with such a range of views and balance uh, in a service or a youth meeting or something, just to, to raise the question. There are lots of different questions raised in there, you know, does the universe need a cause, does the Big Bang imply a cause if you say, God did it then why can't I just ask who made God um, well as, uh, again, John Lewis, to, to reference him again, said if Richard Dawkins had written a book called The Created God Delusion <laughs> he thinks the book probably wouldn't have sold as many copies because we know that created gods are delusions by definitions, so they're idols um, to dismiss from the table in advance of the discussion the possibility of an uncreated creator, which is what the theistic tradition has always considered uh, God's nature to be, to be uh, that which has an explanation of its own existence in its own nature, rather than outside of itself, as they were saying there in that clip, um, uh, is to, to beg the question. Um, but I thought one of the really interesting quotes in there is from Stephen Weinberg, the atheist, says, says this about science. Science is looking for non-theistic explanations of what we see in nature. That, and that's a philosophical expression of a particular a philosophy of science, which he calls on to justify in the face of the evidence, saying, give us time, wait this promissory naturalism that we've talked about. We will find a non-theistic answer and why should we wait for that rather than dealing with the evidence that we actually have? Well, because the whole point of science is looking for non-theistic explanations of what we see. It's a definition of science called uh, methodological naturalism. Now, methodological naturalism is different from, from naturalism as the claim that, that nature is all there is. It's not claiming that naturalism is true, exactly, but what it is claiming is that when you do science, you should do science as if naturalism were true. Um, but actually, you can see how that's a very biased definition of science that most philosophers of science today reject. And here's uh, just one quote from the agnostic philosopher of science, Michael Roos, uh, American agnostic philosopher of science, who said it would indeed be very odd were I and others to simply characterize science as something which by definition is based on methodological naturalism, uh, naturalistic philosophy, and hence excludes God, by definition. Um, so there would be plenty of non-theistic philosophers of science who would disagree with Stephen Weinberg's particular philosophy of science says, and another atheist philosopher of science called Bradley Monton uh, who's written a little book called Seeking God in Science and Bradley Monton makes the point as an atheist philosopher of science he says I think methodological naturalism is a bad way of, of characterising what science is about because it means that science is not the search for the truth anymore 
says rather it means science is the, the search for the best explanation we can come up with that fits with the philosophical precondition that whatever explanation we come up with must at least be consistent with a naturalistic worldview. And he says, well, that philosophy of science, you know, okay, that won't lead you astray if naturalism as a worldview is true. Um, But what if it's not? Maybe science should be about going in search of the truth on the basis of the evidence rather than having made up your mind on a certain view of what has to be true before you go and look. Uh, and so there are, there are atheist and agnostic philosophers of science who would differ with, with Weinberg there, but again, plenty of, of scientists and philosophers of uh, science, some still perhaps, who would uh, go with that kind of view. But just a little bit like, just opens up a whole discussion about what do we mean by, by science and the role, again, that, as we were saying, that philosophy actually takes place within this. Do we allow the evidence of Big Bang or fine-tuning to point us towards what seems to be the obvious implication of the evidence we have, or do we say, you know, that dust is verboten, just by definition. Uh, we can't go there. Therefore, you know, if you want to talk about that, you know, go to the, th- go to the theology department, go down the pub with a philosopher. Um, it's an interesting issue. Anyone want to? to yes. I have to repeat this, is about the difference between doing, doing sort of experimental science on the assumption uh, that you're going to be studying nature as it normally works by its own resources and that miracles aren't going to be uh, mucking up your experiment, as it were, between doing that and then coming on to questions of having done my observations and experiments, thinking about what, what's the best explanation of uh, our scientific data. And actually, uh, there's an interesting... Uh, distinction that some philosophers of science will draw between what's called process science, which is science about understanding uh, the nature and orderly processes that go on moment by moment within the physical world, and and origins science, which which are more closely aligned to the the historical science and the historical methodology, uh, where you're asking, what is the best explanation for a set of data? Uh, And that Yes, I think you're, you're right that, that methodological naturalism is, is particularly a difficulty for a historic, the historical sciences, more so than for the, the, the process sciences, where the question is, even from a theistic point of view, the question is, how does the nature that God has created do its thing according to its powers and processes when there is no additional input, as it were, versus asking a historical question uh, where at least the possibility of additional input on top of the, that, that created processes of the world 
has to be open. And it's interesting to see that even you know, agnostic and atheist philosophers of science saying we should at least be open to that question and, and adjudicate them on the basis of, well, is there enough evidence for theistic explanations or design explanations rather than making up your mind beforehand? Yeah. Uh, Richard's got a... Then you could critique uh, a, a constructive definition of science that might be more meaningful, mm. might be more positive. Uh, because, because you can do science of the supernatural. You just can't control it. I already have in my files uh, documented medical evidence of the healing miracle, which I collected exactly because it was a before and after medical test. It's a scientific observation. Mm. When I asked my orthopod if he ever had experienced them, any miracles, healings in his practice, he said, yes, several. He told me about one, which again had before and after x-rays, two days apart, day and a half apart, a complete mess, and a healed arm. And uh, so, so it's, I think it's false to say you can't do science about the supernatural. I think what, but the definition I'm, I'm trying to wrestle with is one like goes kind of like this. Um, science is the search for how far the web of natural cause and effect extends in explaining the world. Yeah, yeah, okay. So again, uh, pointing out, uh, Dr. Carhart was pointing out in cases of, of there the are documented cases of, of, of healings where you have, say, before and after x rays dated before and after x-rays of the same arm uh, and uh, eyewitness testimony from doctors and, and so on. And I was also present for the actual healing. So right, yes. We were, an eyewitness yeah. to the vanishing of the symptoms at the time. Yeah. So, so again, that's an example of saying it's false to say that science can't, can't grapple with or, or touch upon uh, the miraculous. Uh, but then maybe from, from a Christian point of view that, that, that this question of how, how far can things be explained in terms of the natural processes of the world created by God? But that's, that's an open question that can be explored. And I think these, you know, Michael Roos and Bradley Monton and so on would, would sort of agree with you about that, even though they don't believe in a God. They, they would say that, that that question itself should at least be an open one to be dealt with on the basis of, of evidence and, and uh, rules about what makes for a good explanation rather than uh, ruling out going, you know, exploring certain possibilities before you've even explored is there good reason to believe them. Well, I often have some philosopher who could actually uh, bring the right technology yeah. to it mm-hmm. um, that, as a way of maybe making yeah. something. <laughs> but you need one of yeah. the pieces. That mm-hmm. is, you have to, you have to accept, uh, I think, the category for super, uh, events with possible supernatural causes. And that's how I yeah. define the set of events. Yeah. Things that we attribute to possible supernatural causes. Light, light. But if gaps close, mm. you're allowed to move an event from one yeah. to yeah. one to the other. Right? But if the gaps open, mm. you're allowed to move them the other way. Yeah. John Lennox, likewise, talks about the difference between um, gaps in our understanding of things that are closed by science, closed by information about natural processes, but also says there are gaps 
that as our scientific understanding increase actually open up, it seems to be less and less plausible that there's a naturalistic explanation and more and more evidence of of, of design or miraculous. That's kind what of, he's offering for yeah, me. yeah. It lets the naturalists happily go ahead and look for natural cause and effect. This is what they want to do. Yeah. It also leaves the reality open to truthful explanations that are yeah. And I think we have a question here as well. Okay. Okay. So I think this one, one fascinating application of this whole discussion is, is first of all, uh, where, where is the boundary of science? You know, uh, because this opens up the whole question of, of the boundary and of the, the role of the world in science. Mm. And if we move from, from natural sciences to historical questions, mm. like the question of, of the resurrection of Jesus mm. Christ. You know, you can argue in various ways. You can say that there is no natural explanation that is possible, plausible, reasonable at all. So if you sort of accept a, 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 a soft naturalistic approach to historical investigation, you could say you end up with an enigma that cannot be answered by history. But then, of course, who says that science or history has the whole key to reality, you know, in order to understand the whole of reality, we need more than just one discipline. We need the whole of the investigation, investigative, investigative uh, arenas and avenues to, to explore that. And of course, then we can say, even though there are no natural explanations that make sense, there is a supernatural explanation that makes perfect sense of each and every evidence and data. Yeah. And I think this, this applies to the question, where is the boundary of uh, either you know, thinking about more a soft, softer naturalistic approach in terms of science, history or whatever. Mm. But again, I think it's important not to close, but to open up. Yeah. Right, but it would take a philosopher's training to really do it right. So. Yeah. <laughs> so, so anyway, so, so, so far we've covered you know, the question about why is there something rather than nothing. And the whole issue, the, the atheist response and the theist response. Yeah. And of course, ultimately, the question of how we define the boundaries of certain subject areas pales into insignificance against the question of, well, what's actually true? You know, who cares whether you call it science or philosophy or history or theology, whatever, as long as actually what we're engaging is getting at the truth about reality, and that's the much more Fundamental and these issue. questions are not a question of science. Right. They're, you know, they are not questions that we can decide on the basis of the experiment. Yeah. But they have to be decided on the meta level. Mm-hmm. So which mm-hmm. is itself is, is fascinating. Yeah. So think of Alvin Plantinga said Christians can be very open minded and relaxed about what science tells us about the world. Because as we've seen with it, this fundamental underlying question of you know, why even something rather than nothing? Um, the way in which philosophy affects people's interpretation of, of the science. At, at most, the science is going to be telling us about the details of how God has arranged uh, and or went about creating his world. It's not actually... Science in and of itself is not going to get us to this meta question of why there is uh, a world. But science itself throws up 
these kind of philosophical questions. And as Bill Craig says, even gives us scientific evidence for uh, premises in arguments of, of natural theology for the existence of God, arguments like the, the Kalam cosmological argument. Um, Bradley Monton, who I mentioned a little earlier, atheist philosopher of science, says that if the universe had a beginning, then that lends support to the Kalam cosmological argument. But then an atheist cosmologist like Alexander Vilenkin said recently at the conference honouring uh, Stephen Hawking on his 70th birthday, he said, all the evidence we have says that the universe had a beginning. That's a very strong statement from a scientist. He's not, he's not saying, on balance, the evidence points towards this conclusion. He said, all the evidence we have points towards the fact that the universe had uh, a beginning. And there was a, a commentary in New Scientist magazine, uh, which is uh, not exactly known for its theistic bias, shall we say, uh, saying um, that uh, physician, uh, physicists had, had, have been trying to get around the Big Bang's implication of a beginning for a long time, uh, but that all these attempts to avoid a, a real beginning ha have now failed, and it, it seems certain that there really was a beginning, uh, and without an escape clause, this uh, editorial says at the end there, without an escape clause, physicists and philosophers must finally answer the problem that's been nagging at them for the best part of 50 years. How do you get a universe complete with the laws of physics out of nothing at the beginning? <laughs> yes, David. Um, could the laws of physics exist without matter? Great question. This question is, could, can laws of physics exist without matter to operate upon or, or to describe? Yeah. So I think many uh, would say, I had a f fascinating talk in Bulgaria the other evening, uh, Richard talking about the laws of, of physics and saying that the laws of physics describe how matter behaves, but mathematical equations don't cause anything. Um, and, you know, even if you thought mathematical equations can exist independently of a physical universe, you were some sort of Platonist about maths, um, by definition, how, how do abstract platonic objects do creative work? Most philosophers would say that by definition an abstract object is one that has no causal relations. You know, the number seven has never, never caused anything. I, I, you'll certainly never stub your toe against it, but it's never caused anything. Uh, it's not the kind of thing uh, that does a, a causality. Uh, you need an agent some kind of agent um, to produce uh, effects. C.S. Lewis said some interesting uh, things about that as well. Said, thinking about a game of snooker and so on, and says it can be all described by Newtonian laws of, of motion and so on, but the Newtonian laws of motion don't pot balls into holes. For that, you need a person with a cue. I think that's a really nice analogy uh, to kind of bring that out. So just before we go to coffee break, let me run through uh, my favourite way of putting the, the Kalam cosmological argument. The, 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 I think there are good philosophical arguments for thinking there was a beginning as well, but certainly modern cosmology seems to very powerfully uh, accept that, that the Big Bang theory, that there was a, a beginning. Now that, that immediately entails that in the sequence of physical events that make up physical reality, 
However many of them there were, there was a first one. There was a first physical event. Physical event number one. But surely the reasonable thing to say about physical events is that they are the kind of thing that has a cause. Reference to our experience of reality, physical events are the kind of things that have a cause outside of themselves, at least in a general sense of causation. They depend upon, are caused by something independent of themselves that exists outside of themselves. Now, if people want to question this premise, they'll usually do it by, and we've mentioned it already, punting to, to quantum mechanics. There is one answer that appears to avoid this problem. The idea is that the universe would be um, spontaneously created out of nothing. To understand how a universe might be created out of nothing, we must turn to the theory of quantum mechanics. It describes how in the tiny world of the atom, small particles seem to appear and disappear for no obvious reason. Apparently absurd. Imagine if in our everyday world people appeared and disappeared without obvious cause, and yet the theory of quantum mechanics describes how this can happen at the atomic level, and that might offer an alternative to a creator. There is no question that our universe is quantum mechanical. If you ask what caused this universe to go out, there is no cause, there's just probability that this would happen, and so it happened. But then that is in itself confusing one-to-one certain causation with probabilistic causation. It's not that the, the atoms pop into existence for no reason at all, with no explanation, because you still have the whole baggage of quantum mechanics there, a pre-existing quantum mechanical field, out of which these particles uh, pop. Uh, atheist quantum uh, mechanic expert uh, David Alberts puts it this way. This is quite a nice analogy again. He says, um, the fact that, that particles can apparently pop into existence out of the quantum vacuum uh, is in a sense no less mysterious than the fact that if I were wiggling my fingers around randomly, sometimes a fist pops into existence. That, that some of the arrangements of the fields represent particles, or some of the arrangements of my fingers represent fists. Uh, They can pop out of existence as I continue randomly wiggling my fingers about the place. Um, My fist doesn't pop into existence out of nothing with no explanation or cause. Exactly, you have to have the, the wiggling fingers already there. The particle doesn't literally come into existence from nothing in quantum mechanics. You have to have quantum mechanics in the fields and a whole host of, of uh, physically described energy and things um, in order for those particles to pop into existence with, on some interpretations of quantum mechanics, a, a, a probabilistic uh, uh, causation rather than a one-to-one causation. But even that is questioned uh, within different interpretations of quantum mechanics. So, um, And again, punt two... Uh, a a, a non-biased source here is an atheist saying you know some people like this get out clause but really uh, it doesn't make any sense so it seems to follow that if there were a first physical event 
and every physical event have causes, that the first one would have a cause. And of course, um, if the first physical event has a cause, what kind of cause could that possibly be? It couldn't possibly be the previous physical one. There isn't a previous physical cause to the first physical event. <laughs> so it would have to be the non-physical cause, because that's the only remaining alternative. Yeah. It's for a layperson trying to hear what you're saying. Maybe a better way to say that uh, is rather than pop into existence, mm. rather than saying that, you just say it forms. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The phrase popping into existence can bring to mind the idea there is this pre-existing set of existing things into which something has has has, has popped. And yeah, yeah, that, that yeah, you're right to, to point out to me that that's, that's not the situation when you're talking about the Big Bang. There is no other physical reality into which this universe has popped into. Rather, it is the it is the beginning of physical space-time itself. Or, or all the, with the atoms, right. Well, but there they're popping in, they are popping, they're joining into a pre-existing set of existing physical realities. It's just that, that there's a difference between physical particles and, and the waves that in some of their arrangements in quantum field theory compose the particles. So there the, the, the particles are popping into uh, existence. Uh, but our, our time is up. Uh, so we'll, we'll go to coffee break, and uh, if you want to come and chat to me about Big Bang Cosmology, do. Uh, and if not, we'll come back to other uh, issues after coffee. And I think we, we, uh, we certainly need coffee now after all this. Uh, and uh, when we come back, I think we, we will have to make Peter's strategic decision about whether we should continue on program one. Yeah, or move on to, uh, yeah, yeah. It's up to you what to yeah. if you would like to go into depth more about program one or continue to program two. Let's make a choice after the real good couple of moments. Yeah. The complexity of reality represented the way that the way the cause and effect really works, including the probability limitations. Mm. This, this transient behavior.